But it didn't go without, you know, conversation and some argument with my wife. And welcome to Balancing the Hats. Now, this is Karina Darnell, and as you know, I like to be able to share the amazing stories of men and women all across the globe. So today I have joining me Lad Mandiola, and I hope I haven't butchered your name. Um, and he's here and he's gonna be talking with me, chatting with me a bit about balancing life when we've lost it all. And he has an amazing story. So I want to thank you for joining us, Lad. Oh, you're very welcome, and I appreciate you having me on. Really, I do. Uh, thank you so much. Okay, so we're just going to jump straight into it, and I want you to give us a little bit about who you are. Tell us a little bit about who is Lad, and and how did you arrive here? Um, I, I'd like to say I uh, I'm kind of like oh I I'm I'm settled, everything's great, but I think <laughs> like a lot of people, um, we can feel still somewhat unsettled, even though we feel like we're meeting people's needs or we're meeting our own needs. <clears throat> we don't feel like anything's totally complete yet. Right. So, but and if I were to tell you now, your, your, your question is again, please forgive me. What was your question then? <laughs> I wanted to find out for you to tell us, it wasn't really a question. I just wanted you to tell us a little bit about who you are. Um, because those okay. of the, listeners want to know that this is actually our first time actually having a conversation and stuff okay. like that. Right. Um, so I just wanted them to get an idea of who you are and what it is that you do. Okay. So basically I am one of these people that through my lifetime felt like I was a jack of all trades and master of not none, but master of a little bit of a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that I had to realize about myself is honing in on more specific things. And once I realized that and I realized more about myself and who I was as a person and how I was wired in my mind, then I was able to be able to attack more specifically where my talent was and Go ahead. You were going to say something. Yeah. I, I found that kind of interesting because even here in Barbados, we normally say a jack of all trades, master of none. And what you said just now, you know, you kind of master of a couple. That is something that I would find myself saying from time to time. So how how did you then end up honing in on the the one or the ones that you believe were the best for you, best fit for you? Well, what I did was I stumbled into, well, I'll just say this, my background as a child, you know, my, my parents, you know, if I were to look at where things started as, you know, as I was a child, my parents, you know, they're both, they were both immigrants in the United States. You know, my mother came from Warsaw, Poland, uh, when she was the age of nine, uh, from World War II. And... She was of that World War II era. And so they fled the country from Poland uh, where they were tossing everybody in the concentration camps in there. Um, and wow. they were able to flee and survive that. 
And eventually, like I said, they ended up here in the United States. And my mother eventually ended up in Watertown, Massachusetts, and was raised and brought up over there. My father, on the other hand, he came off the boat um, from Santiago, Chile, uh, and, you know, when he was 18 years old and came up from Miami all the way up to Massachusetts. And that's how my parents met each other. But, uh, you know, they both started out with nothing, didn't know the language, had to learn everything, uh, started up from the ground up. And uh, one thing that I realized about my parents and their values, my mother and my father were very much work ethic in a Mm -hmm. sense of they had a very strong work ethic. And more so my mom was more family. My dad was more work. And uh, they both had jobs, you know, but I think my mom had to juggle a little bit more because she had to be a mother to us as well as work, uh, you know, part-time, even full-time job at times. Uh, But she did things entrepreneurially eventually. Um, She eventually got into building her own small store business. She had a consignment shop and it brought in some good money. It took care of our private school that we went to for some years. Uh, my, My dad... He, when he came to this country, he didn't know any English. Uh, he knew nothing. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like most people. And he had to learn. He had to learn. He, he was very determined to learn. The process, obviously, of, you know, the immigration process was far different than it is now. Um, evaluation was very stringent. Uh, it was the process of evaluating each individual through testing to make sure that you knew how to speak the language. You knew how to basically socialize, get along, and be proactive in the place that you were going to reside. And so he <laughs> he had exams that he had to take in order to get a citizenship. He failed the first two exams. And wow. the last one that he was going to take was either going to determine whether he stayed or he had to leave. There was no there was no anchor marriage or anchor baby kind of situation going on there. They didn't have that back then. So um, you literally had to take three exams. Uh, oh, well, yeah. you had three yes. chances to take these exams, and by the third one, you're you're out pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. And you, wow. there is no there is no ability to come back again. There just isn't okay. for for another visa. At least that's what I knew from what he told me. Mm-hmm. And so. Uh, it was down to the wire. Uh, all I know is I think I was eight or nine years old. He came home and he was the happiest person in the world. That's all I knew. (laughs) It looked like he passed his test. He told me he got a 72. He just passed it, you know, and he was just super, super excited. And I know he got plastered that night. So that's all I know. (laughs) He He got totally wasted with a bunch of his friends and, you know, but that was the other part of my father. You know, he wasn't just a workaholic. Unfortunately, he became an alcoholic. And that was very destructive for, you know, our upbringing and even for the marriage for a mom, you know, being married to him. Mm -hmm. So I had to witness that. So with that said, uh, here I am trying to figure out my life and my background and where things are at going on with me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know where to go. All I knew is what my parents were doing was something that I felt like I needed to do. And try to do better in school, which I didn't care too much about. Um, I, you know, I barely passed a lot of my classes. I pretty much had to attend summer school <laughs> as each year went by from, you know, middle school all the way through high school. It, it didn't change. And there were certain things that I did appreciate. And the reason why is because it wasn't the class so much. It was the teachers. When the okay. teachers were engaged with their students, I was very much engaged. 
But most of the teachers were pretty much there because they were nine to fivers and they had that kind of nine to five mindset. And it's really sad because I could see the lack of passion and the lack of care. I felt like they were just a job. Yeah, they were just going through the motions. Mm -hmm. But I didn't see that. All I saw was I'm just not interested. Well, I'm not interested because you're not interested. And uh, and that's going to go in a little bit more about hopefully if anybody else hears this, maybe might be able to tweak something in somebody's mind in their heart. Uh, and I and I'll expound more about what I'm sharing here about what I just said when it comes to loving something or not knowing what you love and want to do in your life or have this deep desire to do. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really much have a desire about doing anything. One thing I did have a natural talent for was drawing. I did. I was. I really enjoyed drawing. I. Uh, it seemed like commercial art and designing things at the time. They called it commercial art. It's now graphic design. Yeah, but. I really appreciated being able to draw things that I felt like I kind of had a knack towards, but once I had teachers that were in that class, you saying, wow, this is really unique. This is really great. I think you got something here. That kind of encouragement pushed me forward. So I said, oh, let me try something else. And then I would try drawing something else or doing something different. And I always tried to do something creatively different. Um, That's where it really started to become apparent to me that this is the route that I definitely had a desire to go into. And sorry, go ahead. No, I was just asking. So, so then when you had those teachers then that were encouraging you in this area and helping you to hone in on that, did you then decide, okay, well, this is something that I can do um, as a full-time nine to five, was that the mindset that you had? Cause I'm, I know you mentioned about your parents and how they would have gone through in their work ethic. Um, but I know oftentimes when you go down the creative line, you are also thrown the usual terms of being a starving artist or those kind of things. So did you get that encouragement and then come into that line of where people are saying, well, you can't make money as an artist. You know what? I never, for some reason, heard that phrase. I didn't hear that phrase, starving artist. I just never heard that phrase as Mm -hmm. I was, you know, still in high school. And I I just never heard it for some reason. What I did hear was, you know, hey, there are colleges to be able to hone in on those skills. Because Mm -hmm. where I lived in South Florida, one of the biggest schools in the country was actually located in Fort Lauderdale, where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, the, the the Art Institute of Fort Lauderdale. And that's where most people went when they wanted to hone in on their, you know, commercial art or their design or artistic skills. I went to that college and it looked like, to me, like uh, a person stepping into a football stadium for the first time. <laughs> it was massive. It was huge. This university, this college, it looked like a university to me in my eyes. You know, but this college was huge and so many different departments that I saw, literal art type departments where you saw people's work, their completed, you know, art pieces. I said, oh, I totally have, I I definitely got to be here. Wow. Fortunately, I couldn't afford it. So it it never panned. Uh, Mm -hmm. And my heart was broken because I definitely wanted to be a part of that. But the thing was, is that I was able to go to a local college 
and take an 18-month course. That I could afford. It wasn't expensive, and it was a two-year degree. So they consolidated two years into 18 months. They just made the course hours more intensive. So that's what I did, and I basically got my associate's degree. But during that time, when I started honing in on my skills, I realized something else. I said, you know what? I really don't need college. This is a trade forward slash profession Mm -hmm. where it's what you're going to show is what's going to be what it is your resume is going to reflect. So instead of having the academic achievements to prove your worth in order to get a position, back then it was, here's my portfolio. Do you like what I have? And if you do, then, you know, they would hire me. So that's how it worked. So they would say, hey, do you go to college? Well, yeah, I got an associate's degree. Are you planning on finishing? Yeah, it's going to depend, though. It'll depend on what's going to happen with this, you know. But I, of course, I wouldn't say that, you know, be in the back of my head. <laughs> but I always tell them, oh, yeah, I'm going to finish. I had yeah. no plans on finishing. What I was looking for was an opportunity and shortcuts because our brains, you know, we're always looking for the path of least resistance. We just Come do. On. I mean, that's just how we, that's how our minds operate. You know, if we could sit and fart around at home and not do anything, a lot of us would choose to do that overworking. Yeah, we would do that and party all day long. But, you know, reality isn't there. And then, you know, we would deteriorate, you know, in our brains anyway. So (laughs) I don't think, you know, and the way I'm wired, I'm not like that anyway. Even though I had this desire not to do anything and get paid a lot of money, that wasn't going to happen. But at the same time, I knew I had something that just drove me to do something, to be proactive because my parents were that way. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask. So, what was your parents' thought on 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 this direction that you were going in terms of not wanting to finish college and go straight to work and pushing your your art? Well, for them, because they were first generation here in America, my mother, you know, got her four year degree, so she believed that college was beneficial. My dad never got his degree; he was a pot washer. But the thing was, being a pot washer, not knowing the language. And then growing to know the language, and then for him being the type of workaholic he was, he decided to go to culinary school. And after culinary school, he became an artist. See, that was the thing. I got a lot of his artistic abilities. I got that from him. Mm -hmm. The stuff that he was able to design, the ice carvings that he did, the, the, the food that he prepared, the way he displayed his works of art of food, he truly was an artist. He was a master. He worked for the Sonesta Hotel. He was one of the best chefs in the country uh, mm-hmm. during the time for that hotel chain. Now, obviously, there were better chefs than him that worked at different other locations. But for the Sonesta Hotel chain that he worked in, they literally loved his work. I mean, so much so, they had him at so many different events that he was a part of. And I mean, competitions that he was a part of. It, the photos that I have in my album book that, I, that I've seen uh, even as faded as they look, they still look magnificent. I, ki- I could not believe, I said, this was my dad. This is the kind of stuff that he put together, the layout of choices of food and the way he laid everything out artistically blew my mind. And so I knew then, I said, wow, this is where I get my talent from. He's very much a figure it out yourself kind of person and okay. kind of an innovator. If something doesn't work, he'll figure out another way to make it work. So a lot of your inspiration then came from him. Yes. And even though he was pretty much an absent person and he wasn't really there present in my life because he was trying to make a name for himself and he'd come home late at night, you know, pretty much tired and drunk. 
Um, he'd get up the very next day, six hours later and start it all over again. So I barely saw him because he would work, you know, from, he'd be up at, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, and then he'd come home at, you know, two 30 in the morning. So I barely saw him except on the weekends. And even when I saw him on the weekends, he'd have to go to the restaurant. That was the other thing. He wasn't now just a chef because of how his, uh, work ethic was. They eventually gave him an assistant managerial position, and then he came to the point where he became a general manager for a major food rate uh, chain. Uh, did really well in Miami because uh, we grew up in you know Plantation, Florida, and Broward County. Uh, Miami was only about fifteen miles away, so for him, this was perfect. So it was it was a beautiful job for him. He loved it. He had sixty employees working under him. So to go from being a person that came to this country, knew nothing, and to be so proactive and so determined to be work-driven the way he was, and to now be a general manager for you know major food chain, to have that many employees working under him was an achievement. And it was fantastic. He did it for like 20 years. And how did that impact you then in terms of you going into corporate America and and your work ethic in terms of seeing him doing all those hours, but then also drinking and different things like that. How did that impact on you and your development? It was scary for me as a child, even when I was a teen, because I still didn't know exactly how to go about doing what I needed to do. That's what made it scary for me because I didn't have my parents really telling me, oh, hey, let's help, let's help you go over here. Let's help you go over there or whatever. They, I pretty much had to figure this out myself. Okay. All I know is by the time I turned 18, my dad was very clear. You got to leave. Wow. You're going to have to figure it out yourself. And my parents weren't doing too well. Uh, it came to the point where they were waiting until I turned 18 and my mom said, I'm out. She couldn't handle it because, you know, it wasn't just the domestic arguments. There was also violence involved. And okay. it was pretty messed up, you know, to see that and to witness that, you know, a few times in my life. To see that, it was not, you know, it wasn't good. It was terrible. It was heart-wrenching for me. And nothing that I hide from because, you know, most everybody that knows me knows this part of my background. And I know I'm not the only one that's gone through it, but right. my world, all I knew is that I was the one going through. Yeah. So, so you were happy to, es you would say it was a way for you to escape. Although they were telling you at 18, you need to leave. Were you then happy at 18? I don't know if happy is the right word, but well, I'll did say you see this. it as an escape for you then to mm. do something else? No, I was lazy. That was the other part. <laughs> okay. I didn't want to leave at 18. And my mother never pushed that. In fact, mm -hmm. she said, you know, hey, when we leave your dad, um, you and I and your brother, because uh, my brother was only a year, a year older than I was, uh, we'll, all three of us will move up north to Massachusetts back to where, I, you know, where I was born, and we will start anew over there. But when I turned 18, something happened. I, I had this mental clock because I guess my dad just drove it in my head. I knew by the time I was 16, I, I already accepted that I was going to have to leave. So I was just trying to figure out what was I going to be able to do to try to get some kind of entry-level job while I was figuring out going to college and planning that out, what was going to happen for me to be able to make that happen. That's all I could think about. Okay, get a part-time job or a full-time job, roommate with somebody so the rent's cheap and you know be able to figure out college that way. And then also be able to have this plan. Okay, if I move, if I stay with my mother 
go up, you know, go upstate to Massachusetts. It's a whole new way of doing things, a whole new life. That was kind of exciting for me. But I found this lady who I started dating. And since I didn't have too many girlfriends in the in the past, in fact, I had no girlfriends in the past. <laughs> okay. Uh, this was my first girlfriend. I said, I'm staying. I actually <laughs> found someone that liked me. I couldn't believe it. So mm-hmm. I let that part of my emotion guide my direction. And um, that took a turn for the worse too, because oh, she was very much a drug addict. She was not a person that <laughs> definitely had the right mindset uh, to make progress happen in her life. And here in my brain, I was looking to push forward to figure out how my life was going to work. And on top of that, I had ADHD, which did not help because I was very distracted, right. but it still was functional ADHD, you know, and I, but I knew I needed to do something. Anyway, moving forward years later, I decided, you know, to really take on graphic design as part of what I needed to do. Uh, I married that woman who I dated and eventually uh, got divorced. Um, We got divorced. We had no kids. I did not. I did not desire to have kids with her because uh, the drug usage on her part was really bad. It was really bad. She introduced me to some of these drugs. I looked at it as kind of recreational, but I just didn't have the desire to continue doing those drugs. It just wasn't for me. I didn't like anything being in control of me. And I didn't want to end up like my father, you know, with alcohol and being addicted to something else besides alcohol. That that just wasn't where the direction I wanted to go. So that mindset you think is what saved you from then going down a life of of drug abuse and everything like that. Yeah, okay. I just did not like anything being in control of me. And I didn't need rehab. I didn't need, my rehab was watching the bad experience that I went through <laughs> watching my father. I'm like, that's not the life I desire. That's not where I'd like to go. Okay. This is not going to work for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I need to figure something else out. And it slowed me down. I felt like those things, yeah, they were fun for the weekend, but that slowed me down. And when My head made- wasn't clear-minded, you know? And when you made that decision then that, okay, this is not for you, that's when you also um, would have made a decision that, okay, your marriage right now is not going to be something that's going to propel you forward? No. And I really worked at it. I was okay. the only one seeking a marriage counselor. I saw I saw two different marriage counselors and she never showed up to any of them. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and they said, well, this is a little bit one-sided. We kind of need her here. <laughs> so I said, I know. And that's when I had to make a decision. I knew okay. then that I said, this isn't working out. And I, I had given well over, I mean, I mean, I had dozens of times to sit down, the arguments of, you need to get your life right, honey. We got to do this together. Look, I'm not perfect, but you really need some help. We can do this. I'm here to help you. None of those conversations ever worked with her. She okay. would lie and basically do what she needed to do to medicate herself and whatever problems that she was going through that she never wanted to deal with, you know, emotionally and deal with on a heart level, she just turned to mainly it was marijuana to run away. So that was her uh, choice of drug in that sense. And uh, she was getting high every day. She had two, three joints a day. <laughs> it was, wow. She was constantly high and I couldn't handle that. I, I got to a point where I'm just like, you know what? Um, I'm out can't do this. So I left. It was heartbreaking for me. It's not what, you know, oh yeah, I was overjoyed doing this. I wasn't. Uh, It pained me to make that happen because now I'm not just losing 
my marriage. I'm losing a partner who I thought was my friend and, and it's just where it was at. And she didn't feel like she needed any help at all. And, um, you know, people well, you go through their own thing. For you, oh yeah. And I was, and I was what, 23 years old. So I decided then, uh, to move back up North. I was living in South Florida and I moved up North with my mother it was highly embarrassing for me because here I am now what they would consider a boomerang child. It's the child that comes back to live with their parents. And I did not desire to have that happen too long. So I stayed with her for about 18 months. During that time, that's when I made a decision to also put God in my life. That okay. was the other big part of that cog in my life that I always believed in God. I knew he was watching over me. I knew things were that I was doing that weren't right. I saw, you know, obviously the things that my family, you know, even my mom was doing things that weren't right, you know, in her decision making because she was a very anxious woman. And of course, part of that anxiety was driven, you know, because of how her upbringing was. And obviously being married to my father didn't make her calm at all, you know, just brought more anxiety because of his irate, um, mindset. He was just very reactive. And especially being, you know, drunk most of the time, he was highly reactive. That only brought her anxiety to new levels that she didn't need to be, you know, and where she needed to be. I mean, she even had a massive ulcer as a result of it and had to have a major operation she almost died from because of that reason. So uh, it, it altered not only her life, but it altered mine because now I became reactive and highly anxious. You said that God came to you, he came to your life and he helped to redirect you more or less. But when was that turning point? It was a turning point where I just had a very small basic prayer. It didn't last probably more than 10 or 15 seconds. I just said, God, um, please help me find a church because I really don't know where to go. Okay. That was it. I really didn't think of anything else beyond that. Within three, three or four months, I had several people I said, hey, look, uh, if you're interested in me, I want to come check out our church then. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And I never did, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, until the third time someone invited me. And then when I went and I attended, the other two people that I spoke with were actually there as well, which kind of freaked me out. (laughs) I was like, oh, my gosh, this is weird. I think God wanted me to be here. And it's a non-denominational church. And But what I saw was diversity, which was really very odd to me because it was either an all-black church I'd go to or an all-white church, you know, and, but I never saw people of all colors, races, like, mingled together. And that's what I saw when I came here. And I was like, wow, this is really odd. And people are actually saying hi to each other and hugging each other and, and talking, you know, for like a half hour or an hour even after service. And you know, then going out to lunch and hanging out. And I said, wow, this is actually a, like almost like a family. It's almost like a fellowship mm-hmm. of people that just actually like being around each other. I felt like I was at home. I felt like I was really part of, in a sense, like a family. That's how they treated it. And that that really took me back. I was like, you know what? I I need to make a decision and make God really a big part of my life. And that's what I did. And uh, during that part of my journey, there were a lot of things through the years that I grew into. But along with that, God opened up some massive doors for me when it came to my field of graphic design. I had a mentor, and he was an amazing font designer. He designed Papyrus. And I said, you're the dude that created that font? He goes, yeah. I couldn't believe it. I, I'd, I'd worked with him already for about eight months 
before I even found out that he did that. And I, I knew, I really knew that I had somebody that was a great, you know, teacher and a great mentor, but knowing more about him as time went on and what he taught me just was incredible. He really just honed in on my skill. He wasn't trying to make me him. He was trying to make me a better person and a sense of being able to help me explore my creativity and take that creativity to the level that was going to be better than even what he was doing. And so that's the thing that I appreciated about him. I had moved on from that job because I dated somebody. She lived in New York and I decided to move from Massachusetts to New York. Uh, the job opportunities were better in New York anyway. And so, um, we did get married and been married now for 19 plus that's years. Fantastic. Uh, we have two boys. He just turned 16. I have another boy that's 17. So, um, they're, they're phenomenal. They're phenomenal. I'll just say that they're way beyond even where I was at, uh, in their mindset, their mind frame, their maturity. Uh, and they're very much in a sense homeschooled. They were for a while, uh, they're back in public school, but I can see why they're so much like us because they were around us pretty much all my life from the ages of 14, all the way to the age of 35, I had a total of 53 jobs. Mm -hmm. So I kind of left that out of the picture of our conversation. <laughs> but, and the reason, and, and, you know, I never really had a desire to share that with anybody, but I actually now talk about that openly because I do not want people to feel like, wow, that that's me, but I never really want to share that with anybody. Right. Well, that was me. And I was actually able to take that and look at really, was I meant for this nine to five world? Now, mind you, the job that I had, the last job that I really had, didn't feel like a nine-to-five job. It actually felt like more of a go-at-your-own-pace kind of job. It actually made me work harder, and I actually produced a lot more for the company that I worked with, and I did so many pieces of artwork, book cover designs, you know, brochures, pamphlets, you name it. I did a ton of work for this company. And I, I had a blast. It was actually my longest standing job for two and a half years. I worked for this company, but I, again, I had to leave because I had to move to New York to get married because my wife couldn't find any work in Massachusetts where she found a plethora of jobs in New York. So I decided to move over there and uh, we dated uh, for a short amount of time over there. Like I said, we got married and, you know, fast forward here, I am holding this child in my hands. The day that I held my firstborn son in my hands, I said, I'm quitting my job. I can't do this. And and I meant quitting the nine to five mindset because my last job, I actually got let go from the position because my performance wasn't there because I was too much of a perfectionist. And then I ended up working for a $10 an hour job. Here's my wife. She's making, you know, over $100,000 a year and she's totally killing it. And starting a, you know, a new position right out of college, making that kind of money 20 years ago. And here I am, I'm making $40,000 a year. And now I got fired from that very job that even brought that amount of money. And here I am now working a $10 an hour job, working in a rat infested building, uh, where there were literal rat turds in my coffee mug every morning that I had to wash and clean out. Oh, wow. <laughs> But that's just how it was. But I knew then, I said, this has got to stop. What was it about looking at your son that, that made you finally decide this is it? Was it that you wanted to do better for him? What, what was it about looking at him? It was, it was time to man up 
and take some risks, some people might think the other way. Some people might try to do things entrepreneurially for a while. Then they have a kid and they're like, well, it's time to man up and just settle. Mm -hmm. You went the opposite. And just get that nine to five job and just take care of the boy and that's it. I did the I did the polar opposite. That's when I took the risk and I said, I'm doing this on my own. But it didn't go without, you know, conversation and some argument with my <laughs> wife. <laughs> because the one thing that she didn't desire was she's like, this was supposed to be the other way around. She said, Honey, you here here you you're supposed to get the the better job and I was gonna stay home. It didn't pan All that right. way. I said, look, you're the one with the master's degree. Right now, you're the one with the the, the better paying job. Uh, you take the maternity leave she took for three months. She was ready to go back to work. I said, already, you're built to work. So am I. But here's the direction I'd like to go. So I presented my plan to her. And here's the thing. She really supported me. I was I was very grateful. See, this is the other thing that I knew where God was in place with all of this. You have to have the right partner. You really do. If you don't, you're going to have to make some decisions. I'm like, say, hey, you know what? Do you leave the person because they don't believe in you? I, I wouldn't say that. No. You know? And to me, I hate saying it. It's not biblical anyway. You know, I say, oh, I'm just leaving because that's just what I want to do. And, you know, honestly, I didn't want to be that selfish. Now, other people do it. I'm not here to judge anybody else. If people have done that, they've done it. If anyone listens to this and they did that, well, that's something they did. I'm not there to judge. You know, ultimately, God does all that. I, I don't have to be concerned about that. What I need to do is judge where I'm at as best as I can. And if I need input from somebody else to help me make better judgment decisions, then I'll get the advice where I need to get it. But I knew in my gut that that is what I needed to do. And so that's what I did. I discovered, you know, some audios that I was listening to, audiobooks, and I kind of fumbled and stumbled into Robert Kiyosaki. And that's how I found out a little bit more about this entrepreneurial lifestyle. Cash Flow Quadrant was the first audio book I listened to. And that blew my mind because that really helped me to understand that there are only four quadrants to business. There's business, self-employed, investor, and employee, EBSNI. So, you know, I didn't want to be a business. I wanted to be a business owner. I didn't want to be an employee because that's what I was. But you know, do I want to be an investor? Probably not. Do I want to be self-employed employer? Well, that I mean, or business owner? Well, let me find out more about both. So the more I listen to the book, it really helped me to explore what can I do more creatively as an entrepreneur. So I typed in, you know, I kind of tapped into, you know, graphic design entrepreneurially and trying to start my own graphic design business, but that didn't pan. But what did pan was a real estate market. And that's when I listened to him more about that in his furthered books. But one book that really convicted me was one of the books that he did afterward. It was his favorite written book, but his worst selling book. Interesting. And it was called Prophecy. Prophecy was basically the collapse of what was coming in September 2008. And here it is, October 2004, when I discovered this book. He published a book in October of 2002. So I was already two years behind. And I was really convicted. I knew everything that he shared in that book because I listened to it the first time and I fell to my knees when my wife was sleeping that night and I almost cried because I said, man, I got to hustle. So I really took real estate and even more so when I saw my son, I saw my wife, even that much more serious and saying, I'm going to drop all the things that I would like to do. I'm going to embrace something else that 
hope, hopefully will become my love. And now this goes back to the beginning of my conversation. A lot of people really don't know what they want to do when they get older, or they still don't know what they want to do. They work at this nine to five job all day and they still don't like what they do. You know, the thing that I look at is, and this is a thing that I had to look at. I did not know that real estate was going to be my love, but it turned out to become that, you know, I gave it a shot. And when I started seeing some results, then that's when the desire to grow into it more and more became that much more apparent to me. And I was determined to really do great at this position. And I did. So through the years, I was investing into some properties and I bought one property after another, after another, after another, got the bank loans to make it happen. So we were making some decent cash flow, uh, not to the point where she could quit her job, but enough where here I am contributing to the house, being able to pitch in 1500 a month, then 2000 a month, then 2500 a month. Now it's starting to reach into 3000 and we're starting to work into this. And I said, okay, now this is starting to become something. But that's when the market started to peak. And mind you, I was also flipping homes at the same time to bring in small chunks of money, you know, 8,000 here, 7,000 there, 10,000, whatever. So that's how I was doing it. But during all of that time, we moved from New York to Houston because the market was better in Houston. So it got tapped out in New York, but that too also capped off in Houston. So we decided to sell all our real estate stuff, get rid of all that thing, take the money and some also some other seed money that we got from family to involved in a franchise that turned out to become a fraud choice. And it was a video game franchise. We lost everything. We had a house that was built for us and then we lost that. Um, And it was pretty humbling. My wife, again, was still working. And here I have my two boys. They're getting older. They were two and three years old, actually. And here it is, 2008, September. Guess what happened? The crash came. (laughs) Just said Robert Kiyosaki already predicted. And it was, I said, wow. And it, it happened right when we found out that the franchise I got involved with was a franchise. And the loan that I was supposed to get never happened to open up one of these franchises. So it was good timing. I felt it was the worst time in my life, but I never realized how much that timing was perfect because I never got a proof of that loan that would have put me that much more further in debt in a sense of time because I would have opened up my business. It would have never flourished anyway because the way the business model worked in that franchise for 18 months, people were literally almost doubling in their sales. And I said, this is a black swan business. And I bought five franchises, really believing that this was going to flourish. I Out of the first 18, I think it was like 20, I think it was about 20 franchises, I was able to contact 13 franchise owners, and they were all literally doubling in their sales. I, I didn't have to call any more franchise owners at that point. I thought 13 was enough. I'm pretty anal about my approach. I literally went to some of these places to see how their businesses were working behind the desk in a sense of showing me their numbers. I was that anal about my approach because I definitely wanted to make sure that this was going to be the business to make it happen. But that model was short lived Mm -hmm. because in the end, the model that they held onto in this franchise eventually fell apart and they knew it. And so that lining, that silver lining that broke uh, and made the business fall apart, especially during the crash, made it even worse. So many people had to file bankruptcy. And I thought we were the worst. There were other people that had bet, that had the franchise that opened that, you know, you had a married couple. That husband borrowed money from their parents and the wife 
of that husband borrowed money from their parents. So it wasn't only them as a couple that had to file bankruptcy. Their family members. A as lot well. of the, their family had to also file bankruptcy and lose their homes as well. And especially during the crash, it only amplified it and made it worse. We didn't have that issue, thank God. Mm-hmm. You know, but. It still was devastating for us, but more so emotionally devastating for me. So anyway, you were going to say something. No, I was just finding it so interesting um, in terms of what you said you would have gone through and and the path that you started to go down. Because, I mean, you would have mentioned earlier up about the 53 jobs that you had. And even prior to that, you would have mentioned in terms of even as a child being able to see that even teachers in a nine to five job that didn't love it. Um, didn't really produce or encourage others, but I was I was somewhat expecting that it would have been your graphic design that would have really propelled you to the next level because you know you're always hearing about you know building your passion and what you're passionate about and you were passionate about art. So I was a little surprised to find out that you went down the path of real estate and everything like that. So I'm, I was finding it, you know, really interesting hearing your story and and seeing where the direction of, of, of where you went, you know, um, and then to have those pitfalls. So then how, how did you manage then that, that would have been some devastating things that happened to you, but then how did you manage to rise above from that or rise out of that? What do they say about, um, invention or no desperation is the mother of necessity, I guess. Uh, that's, that's what happened. And that's when that that little quote kind of popped in my head. I was like, I didn't realize it then. It, it took me about a month later until I realized that quote. And I said, oh, wow, now I understand what that quote meant. What happened to me was I knew something devastating was going to happen to this country when it came to security that people felt. And I'm not talking about just financial security. I'm talking about actual security in their own home because I knew home theft was going to increase. So that's what hit me and slapped me in the face really hard. Like I I went to bed at night and it's amazing how, and I hate saying this, so please forgive me. Usually you have the best clarity when you're either sitting on the toilet or when you're going to bed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because your mind is blank. You're not thinking about anything except one thing, either going to the bathroom or trying yeah, to go to sleep. Yeah, you get clarity. And when I was lying down in my bed, I literally just, said, you know what? I'm clearing out my mind here. And then boom, it hit me right in the face. I got up. It was like 1.32 o'clock in the morning. Home security cameras and personal protection products. Because I was trying to figure out how can I make a living? Because that's the first thing. I am a selfish person like anybody else would think. You know, a lot of people think, oh, you're such a great servant. Yeah, but at the end, you know, we're all here to make a living. We're all here to survive as well. So I'm thinking, okay, how can I make a living while at the same time finding a way to help serving other people where I can meet their need and feel the joy in helping others? So I looked into the security camera industry. It took me about three months because I contacted a ton of distribution companies. It took me time. You know, I definitely wanted to dive into this industry and I could tell it was blowing up. It was getting huge. And especially during the recession, it got big. I mean, businesses were opening left and right. I was just blown away by it. I really, really was. The amazing part about it is, is that 
in the end, uh, I found out that the security camera industry was saturated. And I figured because I even tried to make it happen still because I'd go to the Houston gun and knife shows to try to sell my wares of cameras, so to speak. And that's what I did. I tried to sell my security camera equipment. But when here you are trying to sell this equipment and nobody has an interest in buying high-end equipment that costs, you know, anywhere from three, four, five hundred dollars per camera, because I wasn't trying to sell cheap camera systems. I was looking at selling high-end camera equipment. Nobody wanted that. People were looking to go to Walmart or Sam's Club or Costco to spend $1,000 or less on getting a 12 or 14 camera setup or whatever. Nobody wanted to spend $500 or 450 or something like that for per camera. And they were not even talking about the other equipment that you had to get, you know, that you had to buy and then get installed. You're looking at three, $4,000. So how did you pivot from that then? I mean, in terms of people wanting the cheaper system or the more cost effective system, but you're selling to high end that nobody wants. How, how did you pivot from there? Well, I started looking at what other people were selling at those Houston gun and knife shows. And one thing led to another and we got into lasers. And I'm talking about lasers that would attach to your handgun, shotgun, and rifles. Now, why would I look at something like that? Well, that's a large part of home protection products because it wasn't just security that I was looking at for home security camera, you know, for for your home. But I was also looking at home protection products, accessories. I didn't want to get my FFL. That's not what I wanted to do to sell arms to people. That w- That wasn't my desire. My desire was looking at accessories that I could utilize, that I could sell for that. Uh, that you could actually attach those arms that you could use to defend yourself where you just turn it on, you point that laser at the direction where you want to shoot, and if somebody breaks in your house, there you go. Now it makes it that much easier. So we sold a ton of green lasers. Green lasers were actually the hot thing at the time, and I made a pretty good business out of it. But eventually that dried up because competition started seeing that, And they made things cheaper. Now, here I am trying to still sell high-end stuff because I was looking at high-end equipment. And one thing that I did notice, though, as things were starting to diminish in our sales, was there was somebody behind me at my booth that I noticed for a couple of months that was pulling out this talon-shaped blade out of their pocket. And I said, what is that curved-shaped knife that you're pulling so quickly out of your pocket? Can you tell me a little bit about it? The moment he told me what it was... I took my, I wrote it down, you know, and I went home on my computer and I started looking things up very quickly. I found out about this thing called a karambit knife and it's a Filipino Indonesian designed little knife that I studied the history on and quickly found out the way this particular knife was being deployed from your pocket. It had a little notch feature that was on the back end of the blade where it would actually catch on the edge of the pant loop while you're deploying it, where you didn't need to press on a button for a spring-loaded kind of action product because a lot of knives like that in some states were illegal to have. This was not a spring-loaded knife, but it was a notch-featured knife that would catch and deploy and lock into place as you opened it, as you pulled it out of your pocket. And I said, this is a fantastic device. And the way it was designed to be secure in your hand, I quickly found out within probably about five or 10 minutes, I just knew in the back of my head, I think this is going to be the fastest one-handed deployable defense tool 
then I'm going to be able to market on the, on the, uh, then I'm going to be able to market period. I, I don't think I'm going to find anything faster for self-defense purposes. Mm-hmm. So if people can't have a handgun or whatever in their home and they, or if they're in a situation where they're outside their home being assailed against their will, then they'll have something to defend themselves with. So when I looked into it further, I said, there is nothing anatomically, and there still isn't. I challenge anybody to, anybody who listens to this, <laughs> if you can find anything anatomically that's faster than the product that I still sell, because I still mm-hmm. sell it. Uh, I have a website called theultimateknife.com, and that website still does pretty well uh, with what we're doing, because right now I'm in the process of you know selling the patent, you know, moving on, because now I'm doing online coaching. Initially, it didn't take off. But eventually, what happened was I was literally down to my last $11,000, and I put 10000 of that 11000 into uh, a company that was a tactical review site company that was located uh, on YouTube there. And they, they were well, their location, the physical location was in Canada. And all they did was just tactical reviews. They didn't have a website. And which I found very strange. I was like, how come you don't have a website? Because our payment comes through people like you that see our channel, that contact us, and we do videos for them to advertise their tactical products. Um, we really believe that your product is going to make a lot for you. And I was like, yeah, whatever. Because in the back of my head, I was already looking for a job. My wife was at a point, she said, I've, I've carried this for as long as I could for 10 years. And I'm really feeling the pressure here. And I really need you to start looking for a job because this isn't panning out. So that's what I did. I really was looking for work. I, at that point, I was considering going back to nine mm-hmm. to five while I was doing this at the same time. But it all came about right after. It all started to come about where I then made the decision that I was going to find a way to make this work and let it go. And this is my last amount of money that I'm giving. This is what I can do. I can't do anymore. Uh, this is kind of like my Hail Mary toss. <laughs> this was it. Um, I wasn't going to be able to do anything else. And if it doesn't pan out, well, then it doesn't pan out. This is the best I did. Here's my $10,000. And I hope you can do something with it. If it makes me a lot of money, great. If it doesn't, then it doesn't. So, what I did from that point forward was um, looking for work. They decided to do something for me. They said, hey, look, we're going to be doing a series of four videos for you that you paid for. We're going to give you a free video. It's going to be th- only 30 seconds long. We just want to test the waters and want to see how it's doing for you. So that's what he did. He knew that was the thing. He knew that this was my last go around. This was my last hope. Because I could not advertise my product and I could not advertise the word knife or say the word knife in my advertising uh, on YouTube. Because, you, I mean, you could do a, a knife video. Yeah, you can do those. There's plenty of them on YouTube. But I'm talking about using paid advertising. I wasn't allowed to use uh, at the time and still to this day. You can't use YouTube, Facebook, or Google ads to pay for advertising on any one of those venues and advertise the word knife because they deemed them all as weapons. That video that they did for me in release, within three weeks, I made my $10,000 back and it didn't stop. It continued to grow from there. And my company was growing. I literally went from just $10,000 in profit 
to over a million dollars per year. And that grew within less than four years. And that all happened with just me, my shipper, who was shipping out my products, and a few great videos. And it just, it took off. But what happened was, you know, as time moved on, as the years moved on, and me making this money, I decided to, um, you know, continue building on my brand. It bought me time freedom to think to actually take time to think. And all I could think about was adding to my product line and branding. While I didn't realize that the other people that were working with me were starting to get more noticed as well. And one of the guys that got noticed, he got so noticed through my paid videos. I must have paid about 250 plus thousand dollars in advertising, which I totally believe was completely worth it, especially if it's going to make you that kind of money per year. It's totally worth it. He got discovered on one of the largest. TV networks on cable and is on the number one TV show that is doing very well right now for him. And of course, you know, the channel that put that out, it's a fantastic show and he's making great money, but that's where contracts got broken again. And it broke my heart because I helped enable get somebody to that point I didn't realize what it did for me. It left me extremely bitter. It took me about 18 months to get over myself. I was that embittered by this because this was supposed to be kind of like my last thing I was going to do, which I didn't even think about at the time, was this was just a stepping stone for me. So how did you get over that that bitterness? And I guess following that, I would like to know from you... Um, because you've accomplished, well, let's go with that part first. How, how did you get over that bitterness and just, or, or have you gotten over that bitterness? Well, I definitely did. Um, and, you know, even sharing this stuff now, it can always bring up, you know, these old feelings or whatever. And it doesn't, because for me, I've learned that I had to still be happy for everybody else that moved on. Because what it what it was trying, I, this is where I really believe God comes into place. And I, you, you know, anybody wants to believe that God does something or some higher power, whatever. The way I look at it, you know, I knew God was moving in my life to make this direction happen. What he was doing was pushing me to grow further. He said, this is just another stepping stone for you. You don't realize what I have planned. But I held back from believing in that because all I could think about was I messed up. I'm a failure. It just brought me back to my past as a child you know, being made fun of, you're not going to be this, you're not going to be that. I was failing in school, all the stuff that I'd mentioned in my past. And, you know, you didn't have really great parents to teach you anything or mm -hmm. whatever. I had all these things that were holding me in my head and I was allowing that stuff to be my reality. Okay. When I wasn't embracing the other part of my reality, which was true, that I was a success, yeah. that I have something successful, not had something successful. And I had to really embrace that. And I'm glad I had a few key people in my life to help me realize that because I by myself did not realize that on my own. And if it wasn't for those key people that were in my life to help me to see that, I probably to this day would be thinking the same way. So I'm very, very grateful that God positioned these people in my life at just the right time to help me to realize the time that I did waste, that 18 months to help me to look at, 
okay, you did that. You allowed that to be a part of who you were, but that's not who you are. And I decided from that point forward, this is what I'm going to do. And those same key people said, you're just beyond a success story. You are going to teach other people your system. Do you not realize you have a system in place? And I didn't see it because all I could think about is, isn't that what everybody else is doing? (laughs) (laughs) That's, That's what I'm thinking, right? I'm assuming that other people think the same way I think. But I did not think about, well, how did I start in the beginning? I had a mentor. Even though he was an audio mentor, Mm -hmm. I still had a mentor. And I did have other people that were physically in my life who mentored me along the way. And I even co-mentored them along the way, too. We helped each other out. We need people in our lives. We need mentors. We need coaches. And that's when I also realized, well, wait, I did pay for that coaching program. And wait, I paid for this other coaching program too. And then when I realized that I paid collectively for about five or six major coaching programs to help me to get to the point where I'm at today, I knew then that's what I needed and desired to become is somebody that could help others and even shortcut their time frame even faster than even how I got there. Nice. So that's what I do now. And my goal now is to help build up people's businesses and shorten their ramp up time so they can grow their new or existing e, you know, the e-commerce or even their service business because it doesn't matter whether you have a product or a service-based business. What I teach and the principles that I coach and the sessions that I go over truly help you to understand from beginning to end how to set everything up and to get your business launched. And you can literally do this in less than six months. You can make it happen, even if you're working a full-time job and you're trying really hard to get out of where you're at, or even if you're recently unemployed and you got something to move forward with and some funding to be able to do it, I literally will save people tens of thousands. And in my case, could have saved at least several hundred thousand dollars. Okay, great. That's fantastic. And I have the actual contacts. I have actual contacts that people will have when they decide if they want to use me or desire to use me as their coach to be able to provide to them along the way, again, regardless if it's product or service-based. Well, I have one question for you. Since you would have mentioned the, the aspect of going into coaching and helping persons based on your own life story to kind of cut that time in half and everything. What I would like to know then is if, if you were supposed to give somebody a, a quick coaching lesson right now, what would you say would be the most important thing for them to go after? Their mindset, minding your mind. I think that is the biggest thing. And that is actually one of the first sessions that I go over. People think that that's a waste of time or why would I spend my money on investing time to understand how my mind works? That is the reason why you are where you're at and that needs fixing. Everybody needs it. We all need that mind adjustment and we need that person or individuals because once people decide to be a part of what I teach, they are a part of a mastermind group. 
So they're not just solely relying on me. Now they get to look at each other and work with each other and grow with each other as I'm teaching them how to make that happen and how to build their own mastermind group in that way to be able to grow mentally in their thinking to push forward. Because our mind, it's basically meant to protect itself. Yeah, yeah. And, and not to take risk. Well, you don't need to be reckless in taking that risk. But you do need to make a decision about what you're going to do. Because obviously, anybody that listens to this and anybody that knows they have a business that they have holes and flaws in, well, obviously, they need something to fix. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm here to do, to help fix that issue. But they got to know that they have a problem and that it needs fixing. Because I'm not going to twist anybody's arm or force anybody to get involved with my program. It's not one of these programs where, hey, you know what? Just get on my system over here and download this free PDF document, blah, blah, blah. I don't do any of that stuff that you see on YouTube, any of that type of advertising. I, you know, not to, to say that I diminish anything that these people teach, but when you got, you know, seven or 10 or 15,000 people that you signed up, I would think you'd have three or four dozen people that are your success stories because most people are not going to do what other people teach. Heck, they're not going to even do what I teach. Most people just aren't. A lot of people get involved with something, do it halfway and then yeah. quit and stop doing it when they don't realize that that's not how they should be wired or could be wired. They can rewire their mind to push forward. I was not going to allow any program that I spent my money on to be shelved and not used. Right. You had the mindset. And so I had to get, way exactly, exactly. It's having the mindset to push through it. Okay. And so that's the biggest thing that I would say to anybody is minding nice. your mind. And that's what I'm here for. Well, Lad, tell us how somebody would be able to get into contact with you. If they want to get with you on this journey of being coached on how to do better, how to push through as an entrepreneur or in any aspect of business or anything like that, and to get their mindset right, how would they be able to get in contact with you? Well, if people are looking to get and achieve at least a six-figure income within 12 months, because it's totally viable and it could even happen sooner and it has happened sooner. Anybody that wants to be able to know where I'm at and how to find out, all you have to do, and I think, I don't know if you'll have links or whatever to this yeah, audio after sure. we're done. It is going to be Lad Mandiola and it's L-A-D-M-A-N-D-I-O-L-A, ladmandiola.com. Just get on there. You can sign up for the free email. There's no obligation for that in a sense of making any kind of payment or anything. You can actually even watch a free shortification. That's what I call my class. It's a 30-minute class that teaches you my shortification process that you can actually apply to your business even today. You can pick up two or three things that you can actually learn and apply. It's totally free. It doesn't cost anything. I'm not asking for anything. And even at the end, if somebody is interested... I do have a gift that won't even ask for any payment even after that. That's valued at $497. It's a free gift that I offer at the end of that video, but they have to watch the entire video. And I would say, I don't know who wouldn't want to, you know, have the desire <laughs> to watch the whole video anyway, because 
once you start watching it, you're going to, you, you're definitely going to need, or at least have that desire to finish it because why it's going to give you things you can apply today. So I would say that to anybody that's looking for that direction and building their new or existing. And when I say existing, if you're looking to revamp your website, if, if you truly see holes of where, you know what, I, I've reached this plateau and I'm trying to get from here to there and don't know what it is that you need to do, that's fine. That's what I'm here for, to help scale and ramp up your business to take you to that next level. That's great. Well, Matt, I want to take, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. And as y'all would have heard sure. him say, if you want to get to the next level, I mean, he's been through so much. He's had 53 different jobs. He's worked nine to five. He knows what it's like to be in, in that nine to five, but he also knows what it's like to take risk. He also knows what it's like to make a decision for himself, not to follow, um, some of the negative things that he might have saw his father doing and made a decision to do better for his own family. I mean, I definitely agree that you should reach out to him. You can tackle his website. I will have links posted um, that you can definitely check him out and go to the next level. He's been through so much. He's been through franchising and everything. He's been through losing it all, but he's also been able to come out on the other end and rising above. And he said that God has been a tremendous um, turning point in making that happen. So thank you so much for joining us. And everybody, you know what I always say. If you love it, you love the show, make sure that you tell a friend. You know that you'll be able to find us again next Thursday. And you know where to find me as well. You can check out KarinaDarnell.com. You can also find me on Instagram and on Facebook. I am Karina Darnell. Thank you all so much for listening. And Lad, thank you for being part of today's show. And thank you for having me. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much.